No. Okay, that one's pretty dumb. It's that round knife thing. That is going to take off a finger. Absolutely. Oh my is. goodness, did you see that rolling? <laughs> yes. It's the worst idea ever. It's, <laughs> like, like, a it's like, look at this knife. It's going to save you so much trouble. It's like, no. no that will, that will, it's yeah. going to. and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joseph dorowski and i'm todd mack and this week we're talking about jonas from the novel the giver by lois lowry how have you been todd uh i am well it's been a really busy uh several weeks it feels like (laughs) since we last recorded an episode you have been out of the country and into spain correct oh man it was amazing this time we didn't record across the Atlantic. <laughs> yes, we just no. built up a back catalog before. That is the joy of an evergreen podcast. We can record some episodes before someone leaves <laughs> to go to Spain. Yeah, uh, it was a great trip, though. Did you guys have a good a good break? Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of weird to not podcast for three weeks. It's it was hard. Uh, Calls it fall out of the rhythm. But an update from producer Andrew. Uh, I did get to work on a new podcast yes. with my wife. We're so that will be... Off. Coming up uh, in this year, a new sibling of the protagonist podcast. So look forward to that, listeners. More information coming in the next couple weeks on that one, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Look for some look for some news on the protagonist podcast uh, fan page in February. Correct on Facebook. Right, yeah, on, on Facebook. <laughs> All right, just to uh, get another F in there. Yes. <laughs> As we said, uh, we're looking at Jonas, who is the protagonist of the 1993 novel The Giver which is a dystopian young adult novel uh, about a future in which humanity has maybe made some bad choices. And Jonas uh, realizes that maybe some poor decisions have been made and might maybe have a way to try and correct some of them, or at least makes, make, make some new choices for humanity in general. <laughs> How's that as a I summary, like that. Todd? <laughs> uh, that's good. I like that. Um, how, when was the first time you read The, the Giver? Uh, this week. <laughs> Really? Yeah, I've never read The Giver. I know of it because I ask my writing students uh, when I teach an intro to writing class in college, one of the first times they give it is to like just write about something they love for like, just tell me like something you you like, uh, you know, a favorite TV show, a favorite book. And this is one of the more common books that gets written about. So I've read a lot of like brief plot summaries from students, but I've never actually read the novel. <laughs> well, a uh, a brief plot summary is probably enough. <laughs> this is not a complicated story. <laughs> my, uh, I was telling my wife that uh, we were doing this book, and she told me this morning, out of all the books I was assigned to read <laughs> in junior high, she read it in like seventh grade. Uh, this one was probably the most like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, I yeah. think it was like, like it was that. very tolerable as an assignment. I think we forgot to identify that voice earlier. That is producer Andrew uh, chiming in. He is the one with the spinoff podcast coming later. Uh, but yeah, I, I think for a lot of my students, um, when they say it's you know one of their favorite books, I think it's this was one of their favorite assigned books. Yeah, I, I for the record, I will say I really love this book. Uh, I read it when I was a kid. I don't even remember how old I was. I must have been uh, quite young. Uh, like junior high age, and I I really enjoyed it. And listen, I, I listened to it uh, the audio, the audible version, and just this week, and I really enjoyed it. There are definitely some parts of this novel that I have a hard time understanding <laughs> exactly what, uh, like the mechanics of the story. Uh, I don't think hold up super well. I'm glad you uh, said but, this, Todd. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> but the as just sort of a, a philosophical kind of exploration of an idea in novel form, I think it works quite well, yeah. and uh, I, I like it a lot. Listeners, we should note that this is a request from a listener. And Todd, what listener was that? That would be my wife, uh, Betty. <laughs> she um, she watched the movie of The Giver quite some time ago, and she said, "You guys should totally do The Giver." And then I said, yeah, we should. And then uh, it kept getting pushed off and pushed off. And then finally she gave me an ultimatum and said, you guys really, really should do The Giver. <laughs> and I said, you are right, honey. And, uh, and now we're doing The Giver. And yeah. she's, actually, she's never read the book, uh, which is quite different from the movie, which I just watched tonight. Um, have you guys seen the film? I have not. Uh, I'm going to mention it in the trivia because it has a very interesting cast. 
Yes, it does. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, this one's for you, Betty. Yes, thank you, Betty. And just know, Betty, I know that this book is beloved by many, many people. I know the story is beloved by many, many people. Didn't necessarily float my boat as much as many other people's. <laughs> um, so if I'm critical of this, Betty, lo siento, yo sé que amas a esta historia. Pero para mí... Mm, <laughs> It, it just didn't quite quite land as well as, uh, like I said, this is one of the most commonly cited stories that my students reference when they talk about stories they love, so I know this is very beloved. And uh, maybe I should just jump into the trivia, because it's beloved by a lot, a lot of other people, including a lot of critics, because this won the Newbery Medal in 1994. So um, yeah. it, it is a very well-respected novel, and it's on the American Library Association's list for best books for young adults and notable children's books. Uh, and it is, but at the same time, it's also one of the most challenged books for library systems, like the the it ALA. Is again, yeah, the American Library uh, Association released a list of the most challenged books. I, I, I don't think it was as high; like it was highest in the nineties. It's, it's been dropping as far as how challenged it is. But, what yeah. could you possibly be concerned about with this book? Do they challenge authority? Well, <laughs> Fahrenheit four fifty one is on the list there, <laughs> <laughs> on the most challenged list. Um, this yeah, was adapted. Into a film in 2014, and the cast, like, I haven't seen the film. Todd, you've seen the film, so you can yeah. let me know how it goes. But it had Jeff Bridges, Meryl Streep, uh, Brendan Thwaites, Alexander Skarsgård, Katie Holmes, Odea Rush, and Taylor Swift. Wait a second. When was Taylor Swift in this movie? Uh, when I saw what cast name, like, I'd already read the book. It was a very minor character in the book that she is in the movie. So I wouldn't be surprised if she's barely in it. She's just, like, in the background or something? Well, I don't don't want to give away a plot point because we haven't done our full summary. Uh, but Hang on a second. (laughs) I just watched this film. I think I would have noticed. Oh, my my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Uh, (laughs) she does not look like Taylor Swift in the film. I will say that. But, but now it is Taylor Swift, right? I, I didn't misread IMDb, did I? No, 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 you did not. I'm just looking at it, and it says Taylor Swift next to a character's name. And wow, I am flabbergasted. <laughs> I did not know. Wow. Well, Taylor Swift is noted for her subtlety and, you know, her demure nature and avoiding the, the camera and <laughs> trying not to make a spectacle of herself. So I understand how she she's brunette. under she's the radar. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll just say she has brown hair in the film, okay. like dark brown hair. So maybe that threw me off. Okay. And uh, Lowry has written three sequels to The Giver. Gathering Blue was published in 2000, Messenger in 2004, Sun in 2012, and that's S-O-N, Sun. Uh, And these resolve some of the ambiguity that is at the end of The Giver, which I thought, I liked the ambiguity at the end of it, actually. So I'm kind of like, I don't know if I needed that resolved. I'm just thinking about Taylor Swift still. (laughs) uh, She actually sings in the film. Wait, how? Mm. She Based sings on the in the film. Plot of the novel. I don't see how singing could happen in the film. Uh, well, t- I'll t- I'll tell you later. Okay. But she does. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor Little Swift teaser. singing, <laughs> playing the piano and singing, and I had no idea that it was Taylor Swift. Wow. Okay, well, a little teaser for you uh, listeners. Based on the book I read, that makes no sense to me that there would be piano playing and singing. <laughs> I still, I just cannot get over that, but, um, but the, sh- the show must go on. So, right. Uh, listeners, we remind you that today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com and you can get a free audiobook, including the giver. Todd, is that how you listen to, uh, to the audiobook? I did. I did yes. And what, how was the, the uh, production there? It's, um, interesting. It's not exactly how I had interpreted the book. Um, the, it's it's a how do I say this? It's a it's a fine narration. Uh, the the voice of Jonas is it makes him sound a little bit whinier, um, like a little bit younger, I guess, than like I Skywalker had, and, on Tatooine, or or like um, Anakin Skywalker on Tatooine. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just more. Um, I had imagined him in my head to be more like Ender Wiggin, like a more mature kind of twelve year old. And this is in in the auto in the audio version, it's played like a like a very young kind of twelve uh, year old. 
So okay. <laughs> probably p- more true to form, but not exactly how I had ante- uh, anticipated it. Uh, and so, b- but it's nice to hear, you know, different performance makes you think about things in different ways. But I, re- I did enjoy it. Okay. Um, but again, listeners, you can get a free audiobook if you go to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. And besides uh, The Giver, there are over 180,000 titles there for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or your MP3 player. And also, listeners, don't forget to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or making purchases directly through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. It looks like regular Amazon. It costs the exact same as regular Amazon, but Amazon gives us a little bit of money anytime anyone uses that link, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. All right, listeners, we're now going to enter the spoiler zone. Todd is going to break down everything that happens in this novel. This is the short, by far the shortest long synopsis I have ever written. Uh, this is out. not a, com- <laughs> this is not a complicated story. Uh, I may leave out a few details and we can discuss those if you feel like they're important. Jonas lives with his mother, father, and sister in a seemingly perfect world in which everything is organized and ordered. Jonas's mother is a legal administrator. There are lots of rules in the society and his father is a nurturer of children. Uh, Jonas is 11 and about to turn 12, at which time he will be assigned his future occupation. At the ceremony of 12, all of Jonas's classmates are assigned jobs. His friend Fiona is assigned to take care of the old. His friend Asher is assigned as assistant director of recreation. But Jonas is skipped over. And then finally, at the very end, it's announced that he has been not assigned but selected to be the community's receiver of memories. And he's told this will be very painful and will require a lot of courage. And then that night, Jonas receives the new rules about his job, which include things like he can be rude to people. He can ask anyone anything. He is not allowed to take medication for any pain associated with his training. And most shocking of all, he can lie. So the next day he begins his training. He meets an old man who is now known as the giver of memories. So this man has been the receiver of memories. Now he's giving memories. Uh, to Jonas, and so he's known as the Giver. So this is what happens. Uh, The Giver is a receptacle of all uh, history and like past memories of what the world was like before this dystopian uh, community was made. So Jonas uh, is instructed to take off his tunic, and he lies face down on a bed, and then the Giver places his hands on Jonas's back, and then Jonas... uh, actually experiences a specific memory which is transferred from the giver to Jonas. And in this way, Jonas is able to experience things that no longer exist in his society, like snow and sledding and hills and rain and sunsets. Uh, and he experiences things like sunburn uh, and broken bones and, and uh, physical and emotional pain. He sees the beauty of things like Christmas and he witnesses uh, horrible things like war. So throughout all of this, Jonas begins to question the rightness of what is going on in the community, and he and the giver start to make a plan by which Jonas will leave the community, at which point the memories will flow out of him and the giver and back into the townspeople. I don't understand exactly how this the, – the physics of this works. <laughs> this is uh, a point I was going to raise later, so let's just – Hold that. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. But, I, I no, want to. Can I ask a clarifying question? Yes. Because like, I'm not sure I processed everything correctly. So, mm-hmm. listener advocate, yes. I haven't read this. So, go ahead. He is receiving. Ahead, he he's receiving these memories from the giver, who I assume has received them from a, a previous giver. From a previous giver, back and, and it, back and back and back and, and back and back. You yes. said if he so chooses, he can release these memories to everyone. No. So the, the, actually, this is one area in which I think the film does maybe a better job of explaining this than the book does. Um, in, the, in the film, there's a circle that's drawn around, around the community, but, but very far outside the community. He has to travel for what seems like an eternity to reach the edge of this controlled space. Uh, and when he does... He passes through basically like a force field or something, and when he does that, then it releases – he is no longer the receptacle of all, of all of the memories, and the memories are released into all of the people in the community. Again, this is just hand waviness. Yes. To, There's a lot of hand okay. waviness as far as the mechanics. This is of the, just hand. Of the this world. is just hand waviness 
this book is designed as an exploration of a philosophical concept uh, dealing with agency. It's sort of it's dealing with agency and, and yeah, it's dealing with agency and with emotion and the importance of those two things to well and uh, also binaries like we need that we need binaries for either end of the spectrum to matter at all yes okay so 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 if he crosses that line the memories get released according to the film in in the book okay let's finish this long story this is one thing that bothered me about the book okay so but this is the idea that if he if he is able to do this plan then he will leave the community, at which point his memories will be released back into the community, and then the giver will actually be there. So this old man, the giver, will be there to help walk the members of the community uh, through processing this these memories because none of these people are capable of feeling uh, – well, they haven't felt – really deep emotions because they've been they've they've protected themselves from any source of like physical or emotional pain um and they uh, they haven't seen color they haven't seen oh yeah uh, this is another important thing um as as the giver or the receiver like starts to get these he starts to see color in the world before that it was literally all shades of gray Hmm. right and, and this is another another part of the film that I think is well done is the way that they um, they deal with color. But so, a- anyway, so, that's so the my, idea. My, my only last question, is someone's intention for him to cross this line and release these memories? Or is that a thing? It's like, this is what would happen. Don't do that because that disrupts the society. No. Well, so the, the elders of the society do not want the memories to be released. That's why they have a giver. So they, okay. the, the giver is an honored position in the society because if there ever is a crisis, then they can draw on his memories of war and, and destruction and sadness and all of the horrible things that they, that they created this society to escape. Uh, but they recognize that it's important that somebody remember those things in case they ever need somebody who knows that stuff. But they don't want to deal with it. And so they want all of those memories to be localized in in one figure. And and I guess it's important to to note that ten years earlier, the giver had tr- there had been another receiver of memories selected, and when she was exposed to the pain of uh, war or something, some particularly traumatic memory, uh, she went and asked to be released, which is um, which is code for to be killed so everyone in the in the village or in, the, in this community doesn't know that that's what like the children don't know that's what being released is they think being released is like you're just you're out of this community you go to a different place in. you're, you're going to be taken in by another community somewhere else but really you get euthanized <laughs> right so she went and asked to be released and so they euthanized her and when she was euthanized all of her memories left her and went into the community and it was kind of a little mini She'd only been she'd only been the receiver for a couple of months and didn't have very many memories to 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 be like leaked out into society, but it was traumatic enough that they're like this cannot happen again. the The receiver of memories cannot ask for a release. It's a it's a life sentence to be the the receiver of memories. You have to you have to stay alive and you have to stay in the community and you have to you have to do this. All right, let's let's get through the rest of the plot okay. before the questions okay. that I see our producer Andrew having <laughs> before we okay. address those. So the plan, the plan, everything looks to be in place for this plan to work, uh, but then there's a, there's a problem. Before, the plan for Jonas to, to leave to leave. The, so Jonas is going to. Whose plan is that? Society. It's the giver and Jonas's together. Okay. The okay. giver has realized this system isn't working. I'm too old to really be able to fix it, but you, young man. You can do it, and I'll actually be the guide here. I'll stay home, and I'll help walk everyone through the release of emotions. Okay. Okay. So the problem is that Jonas's father has taken a little baby. So his, his Jonas's father is a nurturer, so he takes care of babies. Uh, all children in the community are adopted or assigned, uh, so nobody knows who their parents really well, one are. One of the jobs is to be a birth mother for three years. You give birth to three children, then you become a regular laborer. Right. Those children yes. are raised in a nursery until they're one basically. And then they get assigned to a family. Right. So you're inseminated. Uh, you're, you're, you give birth, you never see your child. The children are raised in a nursery and then they're assigned to family units. And I guess just to add a little bit to the way they flatten emotion in this community, like they say, uh, 
Jonas is 11 and he, he has his first dream about a girl and they call it stirrings. And then he's given a pill that he has to take every day. That's going to silence his stirrings. So there'll be no right. like romantic attachments. Okay. Um, Although I'm at, just... at one point he, uh, he stops taking his, his thing and he starts feeling feelings again for this girl, Fiona, that's his friend. So just, it, this seems <laughs> much more like a, previous generation of dystopian futures like Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, and Ray Bradbury, or, and, uh, and, uh, or and a Harrison, Harrison Bergeron kind of stuff. Not the modern, divergent, Hunger Games, action-packed, romantic teens. Yes. Well, <laughs> you haven't seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. but, the novel. but the novel sounds a lot more like the... Yes, the novel is much the, more the, the like earlier the dystopian. earlier dystopian. Yeah, which is also a, a lot more high concept. Let's explore a few ideas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, absolutely. Got it. So John, so there's a little baby, and his name is Gabriel, and Jonas, Jonas's father has taken him into the home to try to get him to develop a, to a point where he can be then assigned to a family unit. Um, and because babies who aren't fully developed when they reach one year old, uh, are released. So they're euthanized, um, which, which Jonas has always just imagined is being released, like taken to another community. Uh, but he realizes in, I think one of the more powerful and kind of horrifying scenes of the film, uh, he watches a video of his father euthanizing a baby. Um, and then he, he realizes Kind of like it's it's when you sort of pull back the curtain and see the wizard behind the curtain and realize wow this is this is really kind of a scary place uh and he he realizes what a horrible uh job his father has uh but but his father announces that the that Gabriel has not developed to a point and that he'll need to be released and so Jonas just says I'm out he goes grabs the baby steals his dad's bike and uh and rides away and they ride for a very, very long time. Uh, they're avoiding search planes, which are flying overhead. And then, f- I mean, they're riding for days and days so, and days and, I, and days and days. We just discussed Lord of the Rings. Is it like in the film? Is it kind of like the helicopter shots of the Fellowship kind of, of the like Ring, that. just walking forever kind of, yeah. in Lord of the well, Rings? Well, he's not on a bike. He, he's on a he's on a motorcycle. Uh, mm. In the in the film, um, but in the book, he's on a bike and he just rides for like, like he's pedaling. Yeah, he's pedaling forever. Okay, pedaling on a bike for a really long, like days and days and days, and then he finally reaches uh, a place where there's forests and then hills, and then there starts to be weather again, and then at the end, he's just completely exhausted, and uh, he's gonna die of starvation and exposure. And, oh, I forgot to mention, <laughs> the very first memory that the giver gives to Jonas is of a sled and sledding down a hill um, in the snow. And the, that's the last thing that Jonas finds is a sled, and he gets on the sled and rides it down a hill towards what we are assuming is a community. A community that's outside of, of Or the... he has hypothermia and he's dying and his brain is just firing this memory of a sled. It's a very ambiguous it's a very ambiguous ending. It's it's really open ended, uh, but that's how it ends. He gets on the sled and he rides down a hill in a basic basically a, an exact reproduction of the first memory that the giver gave him, which which leaves you just sort of wondering what's really going on. So what happened to the baby? That, the baby was with him on the he's sled. With, he's okay. with Jonas. Yeah. Um, and he, and Jonas had discovered he had the, the power to give the baby memories. So that never like mm-hmm. becomes a significant plot moment. And how only just baby? that he's able to keep the baby alive by giving right. him memories of warmth when, it, when they're so cold, he gives the baby memories of warmth and it helps keep, the which baby again warm. flies in the face of like how actual freezing people like them imagining they're on a desert Island doesn't make them not freezing. <laughs> right. So right. as I see it's a, a much more complex. Yeah. So Todd, this I mentioned a, this is not a scientific treatise on memory. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned that uh, there are a few sequels that do remove some of the ambiguity of that ending. And I read the plot summaries on Wikipedia of these. Would you like to know if Jonas was dying or if he found a community? Um, I'm assu- I have always assumed that he found a community. He did. In fact, and it seems... But did he really, wait, or is that just in his mind? Well, in one of these future books, he is, he's not the main character in any of these future books. Like, there's other characters in this world. But in one of them, it seems he is now, like, a, an elder in one of these communities that now has, I don't know why, the power to see the future. <laughs> just Interesting. Another hand-waving moment of, yeah. of uh, you know, this story. 
Todd, I want to state for I want to state for the record. I think this is a beautiful book. I think that it's justifiably many people's favorite books. It's a beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful book. Uh, but you, it is easy if you look at it, you know, super closely. It's easy to see where the like the mechanics of how the memory stuff works. It doesn't really hold up. But I just don't really care that it doesn't hold up. I'm more interested in the philosophy. Uh, and the the ethical dilemmas that Jonas faces way more yeah. than I am about how it is that memories are transferred from one person to the other or how it is that they are then released into the wild when he okay. crosses. And I, I think that is a, I don't know, a subgenre of story that we haven't really tackled on the protagonist is where it's like, here's a handful of complex philosophical, ethical, moral topics Mm -hmm. to think about and here is a framework to give you some thoughts about them like typically these have been more character and story driven i'd say this uh, is idea driven the life of pi where like the summary was done you you covered a lot but there's so much more in the book about the ideas and that is Hmm. like so i finished this book and i was like this it did not resonate with me (laughs) like (laughs) at all like i okay I, i shouldn't say at all like i loved the ideas I loved uh-huh. the themes that were being explored, but the story itself just did nothing for me at all. The characters uh-huh. did very little for me, but the ideas that were being expressed were really interesting. And um, when I was looking up trivia, I was checking out, you know, like I said, I looked up the movie uh, just to know that it had an adaptation and it did not do well with critics. Uh, it has, I think a 30% score on Rotten Tomatoes, but the, um, you know how, or it's 35%, but the little um, critics consensus where they try and like put into one sentence what kind of all the critics seem to be saying. Is <laughs> Nobody's it, a, nobody can agree. Well, it says, Philip Noyce directs the, river, uh, the Giver with visual grace, but the movie doesn't dig deep enough into the classic source material's thought-provoking ideas. And I, I think this is one of those instances where like the, the ideas that are being expressed on the page are really hard to translate into the visual image uh, a film as far as like just ideas and the plot itself is kind of simplistic, like you said. Uh, and so yeah. I understand why that might be the critics issue uh, with this particular film. Cause the ideas for me were much more interesting than the actual plot or the characters. Right. Well, this, I mean, this whole plot summary was my, what I had written was like 500 words and a normal plot summary for us is 2000. Well over a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I finished this and I was kind of like, I finished it at night and I was lying there like, how many pages is this? Like, like it didn't seem like it was a. It's a very four hour long... audio. It's a four hour audiobook. It's very short. And I don't remember how many pages. Most, um, most books are closer to fourteen at least. Yeah, I think Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was a eighteen hours or something. But I was lying there thinking, like, what? Like, why is this? Well, at first I was trying to think of because I hadn't quite processed everything. Like, I'm like, what is my issue with this? And I started to jot down some things. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure that nobody has ever said this. Yeah, no, let me finish what I'm going to say. I am sure that nobody has ever said this sentence in the history of the world, but we could say that the giver for you is what big trouble in little China is for me. I think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A beloved story, which just did not resonate with you, which yeah. is fine. Um, <laughs> and I, I, again, I want to say, I people like what they like. So if this is your favorite book, please don't be offended that it didn't resonate with me. And I am not saying that you have poor taste if it does resonate with you in any way, shape or form. It just didn't really connect with me. Um, and some of the, the issues that I jotted down, the theme drives the action. The action doesn't happen organically at all. Right. It, right. It's, um, you know, an excuse. Uh, the action that happens and the choices characters make is more an excuse to have this exploration of some ideas, which I think can work in some stories. There are stories that certainly have done that well, where theme is kind of motivating what the author is telling. Um, but for some reason, the balance seemed off for me in this. Um, the next note, I wrote, this world makes no sense. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, and, and there are like so many like little things that the more I thought about it, it bothered me. So um, throughout the book, we see Jonas like start to see glimmers of color, like even before mm-hmm. he becomes the receiver. He's like, this is one of the signs uh, that he's special is that he sees color and he doesn't quite know how to explain it because he's never had color in his life. And so that's kind of an interesting idea and in how that gets explored. I don't mind that at all. But then like when he's with the the giver, the giver says, well, like it was different for me. I saw something different 
that made me know the world was more special than what we have now. Uh, or, or it was, I just had a different experience than you, but I'm not gonna tell you what it was yet. Cause you won't even understand it. And so they start giving the memories and then eventually Jonah says, well, what, like, what was it for you that started to let you know, like I saw color, but what did you experience? And he's like music. And I just thought, how did music like randomly exist in the world that he was like walking along? He's like, that's the Beatles. <laughs> like, no one else is hearing the Beatles right now, <laughs> but, but I, I can hear, I can, I hear music that's there. Like for, for Jonas is like the color's all there, but they, for whatever reason in this world, they become so flattened and so same that they, they don't I, see color anymore. But like, how is music just existing out there that no one I, else is? Can hearing? I counter that? Can I can yeah. answer that. Please. Um, if, I can see that it's it would be entirely possible for him to have melodies uh, come to his head, uh, like whistling a tune um, and not knowing where that comes from, or like you know hearing hearing something like that. I can I can yeah. see that happening. I um, mean, didn't now nah, I, I don't know where I'm getting this idea from in my head, but didn't they say that was one of the things that like Beethoven was always agitated and angry because he kind of had this music in his head that he was trying to get out to other people. I you know, always was, have music was, in my head. I mean, he was it's sensing, stuff that I've heard. He was sensing this music and needed to, you know, yeah. compose it out. Okay. So, I, you know, like, I love that symbol. Like, I love the idea that music is like another form of this expression that's gone from this world. Mm-hmm. I just like the mechanics of how it was working. It wasn't led like, how, how did he suddenly engage music? Yeah. I think that the only thing that makes sense to me is that he had music come into his mind. Something like we would, Im- you know, imagine uh, Van Gogh feeling like there was, like he saw the world in a different way, um, and 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 patterns and colors and things that that other people just don't see. Uh, I can imagine the giver being a young child and and starting to hear uh, sounds coming together in ways that that were you know, rhythmic and, uh, and so let, and, 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 okay. his, and his brain process music in a different yeah, I don't, I don't know how many of you are going to get this reference, but for me, what you were just describing is the opening of a great musical number from the goofy movie. When, uh, oh, when, when they're, they're in the, the car, cafe. Or, and, and like all these, like or, the tink of a fork, oh, yeah, and then like the, the yeah, keys jangling, the keys jangling all the start to get rid of, like of I was the, thinking of the Tarzan, awesome. the Tarzan film, the Tarzan cartoon. When they when, when they, they do the same thing. destroy the crash, the campsite, the camp? oh, yeah, they do camp. kind of a stomp routine in the okay. campsite. Yeah, that was uh that works for me, Todd. That's not what was in the book, though, but it, but it works for me. I enjoy your explanation. Um, <laughs> That's what we call headcanon. <laughs> and then uh, the, this other thing, like there was just something about the tote, and like you called it the hand waviness, where like this is just how it works. And I know with the things I love when it comes to superhero movies and golden age superhero comics that are just absurd. I don't have a leg to stand on when I'm about to offer this criticism, <laughs> but that hand waviness <laughs> just really bothered me. And I don't know if it was the tonality of it where like, this is so self-serious and a lot of the things I love that have hand waviness that just say this happens. Like there's usually a little more, bit more whimsy to it. And this has no whimsy. There is sure. no whimsy in the giver. So I don't know if there's like a disconnect in the tone and that kind of just, for the plot purpose, this is just going to happen. Uh, that bothered me. Um, but then the, the last one, which is what we kind of dug into, like the whole idea that the memories return when he goes a certain distance from the community, just it, it didn't make any sense to me at all. And like, um, how do they return? Let's, so does everybody get all the memories? Because, well, even they'd established like, okay, we got this person who's a receptacle for our memories. And they established like, well, death releases these memories. And so when they started to say like, is there a way, I thought the giver's going to die before he gives Jonas all the memories. And that's going to cause this flood of, like for whatever, like whatever the the logic is that he is a human receptacle of memory that can be released into the crowd, which so much of this is like more like hearts, like it feels more like a science fiction than a fantasy. And that seems like more of a fantasy element. And maybe that's part of the disconnect for me, but like death of that earlier trainee was established as the way that the memories get released. And then when it become like, they both confidently say, once you go a certain distance, they'll just get released back. I'm like, how do they know this? (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. And this this is again, in the film, uh, I, I'm sure that when they were making the film, they were thinking, okay, we have to address this somehow. Uh, and so they actually they find a map uh, in an old book, and the, and the map has a line drawn out way outside of the community that says something like the line of memory or something like that. And that's when Jonas and the giver realize, oh, oh if we I like this that line. because 
Uh, in the book, they make a big deal about all the books in the library, but then none of them ever get opened. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> so. That's what it is. Um, so but, uh, I well, can we just say like I just that, want to, well, well, all of your concerns are noted on the record. Okay. Yes, and I wanted to like move on because I've said them. I've made my peace with what doesn't work for me. But there are some really wonderful ideas in this in this novel, and I think it is extremely thought provoking in how it gets uh, or, or the themes that are presented, even if the story itself doesn't quite work for me. So let's talk about Jonas for a minute, since uh, this is the protagonist podcast, and Jonas is the protagonist. Uh, what do you make of him? I, he's kind of a cipher to me. Like I, again, these characters were flat for me. They mm-hmm. didn't. None of the characters really popped uh, in a way that made me think. Like, like if I was going to try and do our game of like, what are ten descriptors of Jonas? Mm-hmm. I get to. Um, well, he's kind of more introspective than everyone else, and it's almost more like a comparison to everyone else more than anything that's him. Okay. Um, yeah. I, yeah. They, they, like, if I, if you were going to try and give a, a character sketch of who Jonas is, besides, like, physical descriptions that he's a 12-year-old boy <laughs> and that he can see color when no one else can see color, like, what, what do we actually say is his, are his character traits? Well, I think this is – I, I agree with you that he seems to be sort of a flat character. I mean I, we could say things about um, his, you know, his care for Gabriel, his concern for life, um, his – once he realizes what's going on, the courage to do what no other uh, receiver, receiver of memories has done, which is to say, you know what? This is messed up and I'm going to do something about it, which I think is admirable. Uh, well, especially the, um... given the fact that this is they've said back and back and back and back and back like the the memory th- this has been going on for so long that there is literally no uh, i mean almost literally no memory of of anything before and Jonas is the one who has the spine to say no this is this is going to change and I'm going to do something about it which I think is not nothing uh yeah, and what but... is going to give her notes that um like jo- he gives Jonas it, it, it's when Jonas talks with the giver about color and, mm-hmm. and the giver says something like when we chose sameness, we lost color. And again, hand wavy, like how did you choose sameness and why does that car cause color to bleed out of reality? I don't know, but symbolically it's really interesting. Uh, but yes. when Jonas says, I don't think we made the right choice. <laughs> and the giver yeah. says, it took me years before I realized that. Um, yeah. And so, so he's saying that there is something different about Jonah than all the other receivers before. So, but to get back to your to your earlier point about this kind of the sameness, I think that's maybe part of the point is that it's it is hard to distinguish these characters one from the other, uh, maybe by design. Like that's how the whole society is is built, and he's not he's not particularly emotionally deep because he's been trained to not be really emotionally deep. Although I think there's an interesting thing that goes on at the very beginning of the novel when the family sits down and they discuss their emotions from the day. Um, Which sounds horrifying. <laughs> I don't think it sounds horrifying at all. No, for me, I was like, I don't have any interest in a daily discussion of emotions. No, not. I mean, I've read, I've read uh, <laughs> like in, in books about parenting, uh, you know, they encourage parents at the end of the day to like when you're, when you're tucking your kid in at night, to say, you know, what was like, what was something to, that made you happy today, and what was something that made you sad today, and it, it can be a it can be a powerful way to get to know your child and to develop an emotional bond with them. Yeah, um, I'm fine. I'm fine listening to my kids, I guess, but hmm, I don't want to dwell on what I felt throughout the day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I thought it was really interesting that they had that discussion of emotions uh, early on in the book. Um, and then later they say, well, that's not really emotion, right? Or like the, in, the, in the film, I can't remember if they do it in the novel, but they, 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 they make a distinction between feelings and emotions and that, that all of the people in the society are capable of feeling things, but they're not really capable of true emotions, which I have a hard time, I have a hard time pinning down kind of where all of these people are in their ability to feel emotions like – I think that Jonas does feel something for his family. And I think that his parents do feel something for him. And I think his dad even feels something for Gabriel. Yes. Um, um, and well, this is like, this, this was one of the hardest plot points for me is when uh, you find out that the dad 
is like the release is killing. I agree. Um, and that the dad has always seen like his role is to be a nurturer and he does express affection and delight in the kids. Uh, you know, the young children that he works with every day. Well, I'm concerned for Gabriel. I mean, he, he makes a big sacrifice. He puts himself on the rocks with his wife who does not want Gabriel in the house. Uh, he breaks some rules mm-hmm. associated with Because he's Gabriel. not supposed and to know Gabriel's it, name. He's supposed to just right. have a number. Mm-hmm. And, and then in the end, he just is willing to stick a needle in his soft spot, which is – I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a terrifying – I think that's one of the – more well done scenes in the book. Um, but I, but again, it makes it hard to understand what's really going on with uh, Jonas's dad. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think the, the goal seems to be that uh, I don't think they ever had that explicit discussion about feelings, but they do say in the book, like after Jonas starts to receive these memories um, and he, he gets like all the intensity of emotions that exist within humans he uh-huh. realizes that, like, when his sister says, I felt angry, he's like, really, you felt mild frustration. <laughs> it, wasn't, right. it wasn't really anger, because I have now felt, like, the anger of war, uh, right. you know, and, and the anger that drives men to do, uh, you know, the, those horrible acts. And what his sister's describing isn't really anger. Um, but don't you think that that's kind of, I don't know, almost condescending when yes. people say, like, I, you I, don't know... Right. Yes. If I say like, "Oh, I'm 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 really sad right now," and then somebody could come along and say, "You don't even know what sad is, man," because I had this really sad thing happen to me, and and like delegitimizing my emotions because you have felt something which that that to you felt stronger. I don't know that that I don't I don't know how how far that flies with me. Well, and I was I, that's uh, exactly what I was gonna say. Like, um, my kids like. They felt anger. <laughs> like it might not be the anger that drives people to war. Right? right. But for them, that's anger and they felt sadness. And it might not be the sadness that uh, Jonas receives of like a parent losing a child. Uh, like for him, he's like, Oh, well that that's real sadness. But that doesn't mean like the scale of sadness that my kids feel uh, is like you said, illegitimate, um, which the, the book on some level seems to be saying, it, it seems to be saying like the, this culture operates so close to the center of the spectrum of emotions that they're not feeling emotions. Once Jonas feels the full breadth of emotions and sees that the spectrum of emotions goes so far uh, to the high and low beyond anything that he experienced in his 11 years uh, as a child within this society. But again, again, it's, it's like you're saying, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel about the feelings of everyone within this community. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> In doing my research for this uh, podcast today, I watched the film Equals. Have you, are you familiar with this film? It stars no. uh, Kristen Kristen Stewart in <laughs> in what could only be like the greatest role ever created for her, which is to live in a society in which no one feels any emotions at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's totally a ripoff of The Giver, uh, and these people live in a society in which they um, they're genetically babies are genetically modified so that they will not feel any emotions. And if you start to feel an emotion, it's called switched on syndrome. And, uh, and then they have um, a protocol, like a medical uh, treatment that you take, but eventually you commit suicide because, because nobody can live with emotions. And anyway, it's, uh, and, and then she starts feeling emotions and there's another guy and then they fall in love and, there's a guy named Jonas in the film. Um, (laughs) Seems a little on the nose. (laughs) It is a little on the nose. Uh, But in that society, like their emotions are all completely turned off. And these people are like robots walking around. And I don't get that feeling in the giver. I don't see Lily as a robot and I don't see Fiona as a robot. And I certainly don't see Asher as a robot. And this is another one of, uh, Asher, I think, is one of the most interesting characters in the in the book. Maybe just because I'm interested in uh, like disability and special needs and things. But uh, Asher is a is a, a child in this community that has special needs, and he he's constantly pushing up against the rules and the boundaries uh, of the community. Um, well, and I, we need to say like when we talk about the rules, it's like the one of the rules that he most frequently breaks is precision of language because he right. he uses malapropisms like he gets the wrong word 
in place of the one that he's searching for. And that's a violation of the city rules. And they say like, even when he was three years old, like that's a violation that results in, uh, I mean, physical violence against a child yeah. to try and teach precision of language. And uh, it says like at one point he, he kept messing up the same word so many times and got his, was it his wrist slapped or I can't remember what gets slapped. I think so, the back of his hands that he stopped speaking for like three weeks. Uh, and then he starts speaking again, but he still had so many of those that he's constantly been pub- punished for a lack of pre- precision of language. Which makes it sound like, man, this place is horrible. But then at the at the ceremony of Twelves, when he gets uh, assigned, there's this like moment of kind of warmth. And everybody kind of chuckles about Asher and they, they remember, oh, do you remember Asher and how much he – uh, how much he has struggled to kind of make it in our society. And now he has, and we found the perfect job for him, which is like assistant director of recreation or something, which actually is the perfect job for Asher, right? Like yeah. they found a way inside of this community. And I think it's one of the things that Lowry does well is setting up a society that initially looks good. Um, I mean, there are, there are positive things about this society and it doesn't, Jonas isn't like wandering around thinking, oh, I live in a, in a gray, dreary uh, dystopian world. Uh, it's not District 12 by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it's not 1984. <laughs> it's not 1984. It's a pretty good place in which he has a family unit and they care about each other and they share things with each other. They share their dreams with each other Physical and they share their are emotions all with each other. The physical needs are all being met. Um, and even somebody who doesn't fit into society completely like Asher, uh, who has a, a, who has a trouble with some of the most fundamental rules like like uh, precision in language, they're able to find a way to to help him to be a functioning part of society. And I think that Lowry does it well in setting up the society to be a place that doesn't seem horrible so that when Jonas starts to realize what's going on, that the the ethical dilemma in front of him feels real. It feels like, man, there are there actually are pluses. To, to what has happened and there there really are risks and there really are horrible things about um you know ha- having access to the full scale of emotions and uh and and agency and i think those are those are the two fundamental things are the role of emotion in in life and the role of agency i think are the two kind of fundamental philosophical things at stake here uh i'd say the other one and it's kind of a variation of both of those but it's uh that you need that range to understand it right so again like the sameness and the flatness of their of their society is very limiting and for uh when jonah starts to receive the emotions like to understand really uh the joy and the love that he sees in like the the christmas scene that is the giver's favorite memory uh, that he has right. as, a, as a family at Christmas, he needs to have seen the war, right? The horror. Uh, and, and that makes the Christmas scene sweeter. Um, and, and so the, the, the idea that we need these negative experiences to uh, appreciate or, or, or to even really understand the positive, because otherwise it becomes, it will become a different kind of flatness, I think is, is one of the ideas being explored here. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the reasons why I think The Giver is a more I mean, for all of its problems with, you know, mechanics, uh, I think it's one of the reasons why I see it as a more sophisticated story than than the ripoff uh, equals movie is that uh, rather than turning everybody in the society into robots, I think what Lowry has done is she's she's kept them as children. And I do think I, I think the example that you give of your kids is really um, like apropos here because you and I can look at our children and we can see that they have an emotional life and their emotions are valid, right? Like your child feels sad or scared or angry or happy. Those are all like true valid emotions. But I think as we mature, uh, we, we, a part of maturing is exposing yourself to a greater range of emotion and when you uh when you begin dating for example or you know like engaging in romantic relationships there's a huge amount of risk involved in that Uh, but we're willing to take on the risk of having a broken heart because we we want to have the joy of finding a partner and and i think in like having your own children again exposing yourself to huge amounts of risk 
but also knowing that the the amount of joy and happiness that can come from that is also equally great. I mean, it's not uh, just exposing. You just have to go in knowing there's going to be hard nights. <laughs> there's going to be yeah. uh, witnessing our children make choices that we we know are, aren't going to be the best and that's going to cause us some heartache. But the joy that's going to come from having that child at the same time is going to be greater than anything we could imagine it, without. It's not It's not the possibility of pain. It's the certainty of pain, <laughs> yes. right? Like I, I was talking to a newly married couple like just the other day and I was telling them, you do realize that that hitching to hitching your lives to each other has now you have guaranteed yourselves more pain and suffering than you ever could have imagined <laughs> in your life previous couple. to now such a romantic but <laughs> but at the same time at the same time you've also given yourselves the chance like the opportunity and and, and maybe the certainty of feeling more joy than you've ever been capable of, of experiencing before. It's like we're a vessel, right? And and as you grow and and you ex, you you take on you know responsibilities and you develop relationships, uh, you become a bigger vessel, and your your capability of feeling both joy and sadness is increased. Which doesn't again, it doesn't take away from the legitimacy of the feelings of of you know innocent children. Uh, but and so I, I like. I like the way that she sets this up in which I do think that there that they are real legitimate emotions that are going on in this society but it's they're like childlike emotions they're they're there's a level of innocence. All right, wait, while we're on that idea of innocence, uh let's go back to the father because <laughs> I'm still trying to work out uh the moment when we see no, we it's see one him of the hardest things for me in the book committing the release of this this baby. Um and I was when it was happening, I was at first, I was like, is it going to be that the father is literally ignorant that this drug he's giving the baby is killing the baby? Is he going to think the baby's just going to sleep and he's going to, you know, send the baby, uh, he's sleeping baby out to someone else who's going to now transport it to, uh, is that what the father's going to believe? But that's not what we were presented at all. No. Um, and so <laughs> at- in fact, he tells, he tells Jonas, yeah, I wrap him up and I make him comfy. And then, and he doesn't do any of that. The child is so the, the, the father has lied to Jonas to protect mm-hmm. Jonas. And it seems like, uh, all these children, or, or I mean, once they're 12 and they start to receive their training, like it doesn't say Fiona's going to be receiving training for how to release the elderly. Um, yes. And that she's going to know <laughs> that she's killing them. Uh, whereas up to that point, they, everyone believes like the elderly kind of like, you know, if a child gets released, they're just moving on to another community. It's, you know, the right. version of parents telling kids, uh, the puppy's going to the farm upstate, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but it's people, yeah. uh, but, but it's not just, uh, and this, and this is one of the chilling parts of this community. Whereas like you've said, it's not just all dystopian, but this is the chilling part is that all the adults are kind of in and complicit in what is happening. And once you're 12, you start to become part of that. And it's really only the children who are innocent as far as what this con- conception of release is. Yes. <laughs> I, there's, I think that because maybe because of the level of emotional simplicity or the lack of emotional depth, that that may explain some of the reason why uh, Jonas's dad isn't all broken up about what he does that he recognizes um, I don't know like he he sees the importance of his role in this society um, I think one of the most interesting things is when Jonas receives his the rules for being the, the the receiver of memories and it says you can lie and initially we're led to believe that he's the only one in the society that has that rule because it's a it's a given rule, you know. In general, they announce it on the loudspeakers. Nobody is allowed to lie in the society, and Jonas feels privileged uh, because of his ability to lie. And he says, "I'm not even going to use it because I I don't even know what I would do. Like how I would even start to lie. Like how could anyone function in this society with lying?" <laughs> right. Uh, the chill. One of the chilling moments is when you realize that Jonas's dad is lying, and then you. I, you kind of cross this threshold when you realize, wow, I bet probably every single person lies. Every adult is lying. <laughs> <laughs> right? Every pilot that's that's flown out and seen probably I mean they've they maybe they've flown to the edges and seen that there's that there's an edge and that there's There are hills weather. out there. And there's weather. But there are hills out there and then maybe there's weather 
I mean, how do they have no sunrise and sunset? <laughs> that was the one. Of the... Um, I don't know that the sun doesn't rise and sun. there's night and day, right? But it's just uh, it's there's just no a color to it's it, so a, it's so it's a general greenness, right. right? Yeah, it's not the beautiful kind of sunset. That's one so, of the most right, one of so the most beautiful say, scenes in the film is when he shows him a sunset and he's on a he's on a sailboat and this is beautiful sunset. I was like, wow. Uh, the use of color in the film, I think, is 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 good. Uh, but but Jonas's dad, I I don't know exactly what to make of of that scene. It's it's horrifying uh, to to think about. I think that there's there's maybe something of Holocaust in there, like uh, you know, people humans in Germany becoming numb to what's being done to yeah, other humans, right? And just recognizing that this is kind of a part of of what it is. And I've I mean I've seen that on. We've, we see the, these kinds of things on small scale when, um, for example, when I was in grad school, I was walking to school one day and there were these people out protesting um, uh, the treatment of poultry on poultry farms. And, and they were saying, you should never eat any chicken, ever. And, and this girl stops me on the road and she says, do you know what they do to chickens? And I said... No, I can probably guess, but I don't really want to know because I don't want to stop eating chicken. And then I just kept walking along. <laughs> like I don't have time for your crusade. And that's, that's a really kind of cold way of seeing the world. But, <laughs> but uh, I wonder if there's something of that also in, in, in what's going on in the society that everybody realizes, probably comes to some realization when they do their job, like, whoa. I didn't realize this is exactly how it is, but they're not equipped to handle really deep uh, emotions, and they or even, and um, their, their the needs are being taken care of. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's, so I mean, then it's, I think they just. I was gonna say it's it's the traditional logical fallacy, which is one of the things that gets fought against in the end of this. Like the the way doing something because it's always been done. Isn't the reason to keep doing something like what is the reason it's always been done. Once you figure that out, that should be your reason for saying, well, this is why X needs to be the way it is. So for the nurturers to keep killing the babies, because that's what the nurturers who taught them did. And that's what the nurturers who taught them did. That's not the reason they'd have to figure out like, what is the actual reason that we, that we do this thing. And is that right or wrong? But they don't. They never reach that point of questioning. They they get stuck in the tradition rut of we're just going to keep doing what's been doing back and back and back and back. Uh, so, final thoughts on this? Uh, th- this book is worth reading for the philosophical ideas. Don't worry too much about the plot or the the mechanics of how one human can become a receptacle of all memories of humankind and potentially release them just by walking away. <laughs> like that yeah <laughs> that's that's gonna fall apart if you look at it too closely but uh particularly the novel I, again i don't i haven't seen the film myself but the novel does raise some really thought-provoking ideas and i think it does an able job of exploring them sometimes i think the symbolism which i enjoy uh is used at the expense of uh plot which bothers me but I like the symbolism that's present. I like the ideas that are being explored. So I do recommend reading this if you haven't. So <laughs> I've compared The Giver now to uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Now I'm going to compare it to Magic Knight Ray Earth. Uh, but <laughs> I, I hope just... all of our listeners have listened to all of our episodes. <laughs> or else when you, two of when these you just said... are going to fall flat. <laughs> when you just said... Um... I can't, I can't remember how you worded it exactly, but uh, something about how how a one human being can be a receptacle of all human memory and then uh, release those memories just by walking away. Um, there was something of that in Magic Knight Ray Earth, right? Where she was, the, there was like the princess and she's... I'm going to ruin this completely. I'm sorry, all of you fans of Magic Knight Ray Earth. But she, but she was like holding up something. the world... Yes. She's responsible for holding up the world. But she has and... to be captive to do it. Yeah. Or and something. There she was... holds something at bay. There was this debate at the end, like, what happens if she just walks away? And I think getting back to your point about tradition, uh, the fact that this has been going on for so long, uh, what happens if you just walk away from status quo, right? Like, you turn your back on the way that things have always been done and do do something in, in a completely different way. Um Anyway, I was just a like 
made me think of that when when you mentioned that. I uh, I agree with you. The mechanics of this story are tricky. Um, in some ways, it reminds me of like a Borges short story, which is really just an excuse to explore an idea more than it is to have like a great plot. Um, I don't think that the, the plot of this story is particularly uh, interesting, but I do think that these ideas, uh, especially about age, agency, which we haven't talked about maybe as much as we have about emotion, but but just the importance of agency and and being able to choose and the 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 balance between uh, safety and freedom, and right? That, that- um, the right to choose is also going to include the right to make the wrong choice. And what the society has done is removed the right to make a wrong or right choice, basically. And that we can. I mean, this is one of the big, I think one of the big ethical questions, not only of our time, but of all time, is how much freedom are you willing to give up in the name of safety? And we can ensure safety in many in many instances but we have to give up a load of freedom to get it and uh and i think that it's interesting to think about that in con- in concrete ways it, it, it has to do with like raising children right <laughs> like you could give your children ultimate freedom but i don't think you or i or most parents are willing to do that because there's too much risk uh, in well, allowing our children also- to do societal blocks on that. (laughs) But, but also, I mean, you don't want to raise a child with too many constrictions for their safety, right? Where they lose the ability to individualize themselves to, uh, to make those choices that we're talking about, which is what the society and the giver has largely done is removed that ability in the name of safety. You and I are not that old, but you, but we can probably both remember times when we were little I mean, when I was little, I would jump on my bike and I'd go ride around with my brothers and we'd ride in the dirt hills and we'd ride through construction sites. And my mom would stand out on the front porch and whistle like really loud because my mom could whistle really loud and we could hear it from very far away. And then we would come home. And (laughs) that was that that was my childhood. And that's just absurd for many people today. Right. To let their kids just wander wander wild through the you – know, playing night games late at night and cr- 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 climbing through people's backyards and I mean, all of that kind of stuff now is uh, – I think we live in a society that's way more risk-averse than even our parents were with regards to us. And it's better. Like I think children today are safer than they were when we were growing up in the 80s and early 90s, but but I don't know that it's – better in every way it's just we live in a different society but i think that's one of the things that's at the heart of here and um and it it's one of the reasons why i think this story resonates with so many people is because it touches on uh, something that's hard as a parent it's hard as a teacher it's hard in our jobs and it's hard in our society and we see that in you know lawmakers and trying to figure out how to keep us safe but also not live in the society of the giver I mean, that's basically like the, the post 9-11 debate is is a lot of the ideas that yeah. are being explored in this uh, and a lot of other stories. Like uh, stories like Marvel Civil War, which is a post 9-11 big crossover event that Marvel Comics did. But it's really like the thematic spine of the series is this debate between uh, Iron Man and Captain America about uh, safety versus freedom. Like the, as you increase safety, you are negating freedom. And Captain America is on the side of freedom where he's saying like, no, the government should not be doing everything that the government is currently doing in the name of protecting the Marvel universe. And Tony Stark is saying, no, for the safety of our citizens, we need to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, and they have a physical fight as well as the philosophical fight <laughs> um, over, over those issues. But I mean, there are any number of stories that uh, are exploring this. And I think the giver goes up there in the list of ones that are able to explore this issue. Well, um, again, like the themes are stronger than the plot itself, but the, just that theme alone makes it worth um, having particularly even, uh, you know, grade school and junior high children reading this. I think it's a good introduction to some of those ideas that are like, like you just said, Todd, our society is still really wrestling with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's no end in sight to the debate. I, I, th- I think this goes back, you know, to 
essentially like once you start forming government, this is the core debate of the government. <laughs> is yeah, how far are we going to be swaying on the rights of the citizens versus the safety of the citizens? You know, the right rights this to privacy, the, rights to freedom. This is a story of the expansion of the West, right? And I mean, every Louis Lamour novel is this. It's the it's the it's the lone wolf uh, gunfighter who who is free and wants to roam free and uh, and then a society that comes along and says you can't you can't be like that anymore because we're you know an organized society and we don't we don't shoot people when we disagree with them <laughs> and uh, man it's just it's really it's it's I think it's really fundamental to it's one of the fundamental debates of of our time for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes, and please leave us a review there. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. But if you like this episode, you may enjoy checking out episode 20, which is about Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, and uh, episode number 25, which is about Ender Wigan in Ender's Game. If you just can't get enough of... Uh, juvenile, uh, young adult, uh, dystopian futures. Yeah. <laughs> uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest uh, stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Uh, and we have great conversations there with our listeners, and and uh, we would love for you to uh, stop by and say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation, or you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Uh, all supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quickcasts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films. Uh, and you can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more, but we get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. This must be verified. <laughs> Let me uh, <laughs> check some facts here. And if I'm wrong, I want this all cut, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We House so of M and Decimation to took place first, and the disassembled. Oh, and then they, oh, things I were starting to come right. back together, and then right. they did Civil War in, like, 2006? Yeah, House of M was 2005, and Civil War is, I want to say it's 2006 or seven. Let me see.